You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 52. In today's Tidbit Tuesday, I'm going to give you a beginner's guide to photographing the Milky Way, including tips on gear, settings, and planning. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everyone, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. If you're listening to this episode when it airs, we've just passed the spring equinox in the Northern Hemisphere, which means we're entering the season when we can photograph the galactic core of the Milky Way. So if you're new to photographing the Milky Way or need a refresher, then this episode is for you. So let's start off with talking about gear and accessories, which we don't really do very often on this podcast. So first of all, you will need a DSLR or mirrorless camera. And while you'll get cleaner night sky images with a full frame sensor, you can still create excellent quality Milky Way photographs with a crop sensor as well. So don't let that stand in your way of trying night sky photography. Second, you will need a fast wide angle lens. So a fast lens simply means a lens that has an aperture that is wider than say f2.8. So typically the range of fast lenses is around f1.2 to 2.8. And you can photograph the Milky Way with kit lenses that start at, say, f3.5 or even f4, but you will really have to crank up the ISO and that will introduce noise into the image. So it's not recommended. And we'll talk more about settings in a moment. And in terms of focal length, if you're using a full-frame camera, then wide-angle lenses in the 14 to 24 millimeter range are best for including, you know, a good chunk of the Milky Way and any other interesting features in the landscape. If you're using a crop sensor camera, then the equivalent focal ranges would be more in the 10 to 16 millimeter range. Now, because you will be using very long shutter speeds to photograph the Milky Way, a sturdy tripod and ball head are ideal. Now, if you need to add extra stability to your tripod, you can always weigh it down with a tripod sling, which basically attaches to the three legs and can hold some rocks. Or you can hang your camera bag or a bag of sand or some such from the hook of the center column of your tripod if it has one. In terms of other accessories, I would recommend bringing along a few extra charged batteries because the long shutter speeds you will be using will use up a lot of battery power. And alternatively, you could also use a battery grip and grips work to double the capacity of your battery life on your camera by providing a second battery. I would also recommend using a remote shutter release, and I prefer ones that are wireless so that you are fully disconnected from your camera as you're triggering the shutter. You could also use in the built-in timer on your camera, but the shutter release is nice because you wouldn't inadvertently bump the camera or tripod and change your composition as you're, you know, going back to take another image. Another accessory that I highly recommend is a headlamp with a dual mode light so that you have the option of a red light for preserving your night vision. And in terms of night vision, I also find it helpful to lower the brightness of the LCD display 
and also to cover up any blinking lights on your camera and or on your shutter release device using a little gaffer tape. And this is also just courteous to anybody else who might be doing photography with you. Another thing that you can do to help preserve your night vision is that after you've taken a few test shots and made your final adjustments to setting and composition, you can turn off the playback preview feature so that your LCD doesn't light up with every photo that you're making. Another option that I've done in the past that works well is to actually cover my LCD display with a red transparency film that you can just get on Amazon. And I cut it up to fit the size of the LCD. And if when I put it over the LCD, I can still preview the image without losing any of my night vision. Now, keep in mind that your camera will be pointed up at the stars. So the lens is likely going to get dew forming on it throughout the night, depending on your location, of course. And one way to avoid that from happening is to keep the lens slightly warmer than the dew point. And my preferred method to do this is just to attach a couple of hand warmers with a rubber band around the lens. I also use a lens hood, which further keeps the dew off. And there are USB powered lens muffs, I think is what they're called, that you can buy out there. But keep in mind that you would need to power it somehow. And I just prefer to use the hand warmers. I also will use a camera rain cover, which is like a big, long plastic sleeve that has a cinch at the end of it. And you can slip that over your camera and tripod and cinch it around the lens hood. And that keeps moisture off of the camera once you've got your composition all set up. Now, the rain cover can be a bit cumbersome. And so if you're changing the composition a lot... Uh, it could be maybe not that feasible to use, but if you're doing something like a time lapse, then it actually does work really well. And since we're talking about lenses, another little tip is that it's a good idea to remove any filters like a UV filter that you may have attached to the lens. And the reason for that is that the extra glass can distort the image just enough to make those stars just not really crystal clear and sharp. Now, in terms of what sort of outdoor gear you should be wearing to be comfortable doing night sky photography, you know, obviously this depends on where you're located. But generally speaking, you want to be sure that you're bringing an extra warm layer, a pair of gloves and a warm hat, even in the summer months, because if you're sitting outside, even if it's in the, you know, 50 degrees or so, you, you can get chilly. And rain gear is also helpful to pack along so that you're keeping the dew off of you as well. Now, in episode 48, I gave a whole bunch of safety tips on hiking alone, and they all apply for doing night sky photography as well. So I won't go into those safety tips here, but do listen to that episode if you don't have any experience with hiking at night or alone. And lastly, consider bringing along some bug spray or tick repellent if you need it, and be sure that you have plenty of water and snacks packed as well. All right, now let's shift gears and talk about exposure settings for Milky Way photography. So our goal is to try to capture as much light from the stars as possible without introducing noise or movement of the stars. So first, the aperture that you should use is the widest aperture of your lens. So for example, if you have a 14 to 24 millimeter f2.8 lens, you would then set your aperture to the widest aperture, which is f2.8, in order to maximize the amount of light that can come into the lens. So now let's talk about shutter speed because that's our limiting factor for how high or low we can push the ISO setting. With shutter speed, the goal is to find the longest shutter speed that you can use to capture as much light as possible from the stars without also capturing the movement of the stars. 
Now, I realize the stars are not moving. We are the ones moving thanks to the rotation of the Earth. But nonetheless, it appears to us that the stars move from east to west across the sky throughout the night. And if you use a shutter speed that is too long, you will get star trails rather than pinpoint stars. So there's a guide that you can start with called the 500 rule. And this is not a rule, but a starting place to figure out what combination of settings would work best for your camera and lens setup. And the 500 rule pertains to full frame cameras, whereas the 330 rule pertains to crop sensor cameras. And the idea is that you would divide 500 or 330, depending on your sensor size, by the focal length that you plan to use. And then the resulting number you get is the shutter speed that you start with. So, for example, if I was using my Nikon Z7, which is a full frame camera with a 20 millimeter f1.8 lens, then I would divide 500 by 20 and I get 25 seconds. And this is the longest shutter speed you would want to use. So if you start with the 500 rule, then you can test multiple shutter speeds starting at 25 seconds in this example, and then incrementally try faster shutter speeds to find the one that is most appealing to you. Now, you would do the same sort of calculation for a crop sensor camera using 330 as the factor. So let's say, for example, you have a crop sensor camera with a 14 millimeter lens then you would divide 330 by 14 and get about 24 seconds as your starting and longest shutter speed. Next, let's talk about the ISO setting. Like with other kinds of landscape photography, our goal is to find the lowest ISO that we can get away with and still properly expose the image. And for Milky Way photography, ISO settings are usually in the range of 1600 to 6400. Now, I won't go into all of the details of ISO right now, but I have in-depth articles on it on the Outdoor Photography School website, should you want to learn more. But suffice it to say that ISO amplifies the light signal after the sensor has been exposed. And so by raising the ISO, you effectively amplify the brightness of the exposure. However, the brightness of all the pixels are amplified, and this is what we end up seeing as noise in the image. Therefore, the goal is to use the lowest ISO you can to get the brightness level you need, given your aperture and shutter speed settings. So like with shutter speed, you need to test out what ISO would work best for your camera and lens combo. I would start at around an ISO of 1600 and then incrementally increase the ISO from there and see which ISO setting you start to get a level of noise that is unacceptable to you. And there are tricks to reduce the amount of noise, like stacking multiple images or using a star tracker and things like that. But that's beyond our conversation today. So these setting recommendations are just starting places. And once you've experimented a little bit, you'll be able to be more confident as to what settings work best for your particular camera and lens. Just a few more additional settings to keep in mind. You should shoot in raw format. And the reason is, is because JPEGs are compressed files. And so some of the pixels are actually being thrown away in order to reduce the size of the file. And the camera is also doing some in-camera processing of the image. And you'll just have more leeway in terms of cleaning up your image and post-processing if you use a raw file. 
Also, if you do shoot in RAW, then you can set your white balance to auto white balance because you can adjust it later in post-processing. An optional setting is to turn on long exposure noise reduction. So when this is on, the camera takes a second exposure with the shutter closed and uses that file to subtract out any background noise. And this can result in a cleaner image, but it also slows down your process because now you have to wait for another 20 to 25 second or so exposure. So this does not work well for time lapses, for example, and it will also eat up your battery. So let's talk for a moment about focusing your lens. If you can, it's easiest to find infinity focus of your lens during the day and then switch your lens to manual focus mode and tape the focus ring down in place with gaffer tape so it doesn't move. However, there are tricks to focusing at night as well. One way is to use live view in order to focus on a bright planet if you can find one or more practically, you could focus on a headlamp or even a street lamp off in the distance before you head into your dark location. And then again, switch to manual focus and tape the ring down so that it doesn't move while you're setting up your gear. All right, last but not least, let's talk briefly about planning a Milky Way photograph. So first, let's start with a few just basics about the Milky Way. The Milky Way appears as a thick band of stars that stretches across the sky from the northern sky to the southern sky. And the most photographed part of the Milky Way is the galactic core, which is found in the southern end of the Milky Way. Milky Way season is the time of year when the galactic core is above the horizon and we can photograph it, which in the northern hemisphere is from around March to November. The galactic core is the most photogenic aspect of the Milky Way, and it's also the brightest, which is why it's the most popular part to photograph. But you can photograph any part of the Milky Way if you like. There are three things that can affect the visibility of the Milky Way that you should consider as part of your planning, and they are weather, light pollution, and the moon. So obviously, if it's cloudy, you won't be able to photograph the night sky. But sometimes you can get some really interesting images with partly cloudy skies. So it's really up to your preference and the feasibility of your time to get out. But I would say that if the forecast is calling for more than 50% cloud coverage, I probably wouldn't bother going out. Also, humidity can play a role in making the stars seem a little soft or hazy. So if it's really hot and sticky out in the middle of the summer, you may opt to wait until later in the season when it tends to be less humid. And a good weather app to check for both cloud coverage and humidity is Meteo Blue. Next, light pollution can also adversely affect your Milky Way images for two reasons. One, it can wash out the light of the stars. And two, it adds an orangey hue to the horizon that may be undesirable. There are ways to try to correct the color in post-processing, but sometimes that adds unwanted artifacts or noise to the image that may not improve matters much. The galactic core rises in the southeastern sky and sets in the southwestern sky. And over the course of the season, it switches from being more in the southeast to more in the southwest. So when you're considering potential locations and compositions, you'll want to check what the light pollution is for not only where you will be physically located when you're setting up your camera and tripod, but also the direction in which you're pointing the camera in the southern sky. 
So for instance, if there's a city south of your shooting location, chances are you're going to get light pollution in the image on the horizon, even if you yourself are located in a dark sky area. And I'm going to put links in the show notes to all the things I'm mentioning today, as well as to a couple of websites that have light pollution maps and show where the brightest and darkest skies are located. If you find that even in dark sky areas, there is still some unwanted light pollution in your images, then you can invest in a light pollution filter that filters out that orangey yellow wavelength of light that's usually caused by street lamps. Light pollution filters that are made of dimidium are very effective at capturing a more accurate color of the sky, and that will result in a cleaner raw file and will reduce the amount of post-processing time you'll need to spend on trying to clean up the image. There are many light pollution filters out there, and the two that I recommend you check out are the Hoya Starscape filter, which is the more economical option, and the Lonely Spec Pure Night filter. And I'll put links to these in the show notes as well. Okay, so the last thing that can affect your ability to photograph the Milky Way is the light of the moon. So it's important to be aware of both the phase of the moon and the times when the moon is rising and setting. For example, if you want to maximize your hours photographing the Milky Way in a given night, then going out during the new moon or on a night when the moon is setting early is best. Sometimes moonlight can actually be favorable because you can use the light of the moon to light up your foreground or other points of interest in the scene, but you don't need a lot of moonlight to do this, like when the moon is less than a 20% waxing or waning crescent. And since the moon is so much brighter than the stars, the long shutter speeds that you'll be using will greatly exaggerate the light of the moon in your photograph. Information like the phase and rise and set times of the moon can be found online, and it's readily available in photo planning apps like PhotoPills or the Photographer's Ephemeris. So if you want to find information like where will the Milky Way be in the sky, what orientation will it have on a given day or time, like will it appear more vertical in the sky or more horizontal, Or at what time will the galactic core be above the horizon? You know, do I need to be out there all night? And can I find a night when the moon will be at the right phase or setting at the right time so that I can create the composition I have in mind and so forth? So if you have questions like these, then it's worth learning an app like PhotoPills or the photographer's ephemeris. And I have a whole video series on YouTube called PhotoPills Friday that I did at the start of the pandemic. And in it, I share my screen and I show you step-by-step how to use the app in short tutorials. And you can find all the videos for free at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash photopills Friday. The ones that are specific to Milky Way planning are episodes 20 and 21. But if you're new to PhotoPills, I would recommend starting at the beginning of PhotoPills Friday because it can be a pretty overwhelming app to learn at first, and the topics I present in the episodes build upon each other. So I hope it makes it easier for you to learn. All right, thanks so much for listening to this Tidbit Tuesday. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you feel ready to enjoy the stars this Milky Way season. You can find all the links and information I mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 52. 
And while you're there, if you're getting value out of the podcast, it would be amazing if you would leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify, which you can actually do right on the podcast website. Or you could also show your support by buying me a coffee, which helps me to cover the costs of production. And I really, truly appreciate it. As you know, I enjoy hearing from you. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future Tidbit Tuesday, or if you just have a topic you'd like to suggest, you could submit your question or topic on the website as well at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. And I'll be back here next week with photographer Justin Tedford to talk about personal photography projects, including his current one photographing Iowa's agricultural and rural communities. And so until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.